Thank you, Brandon. So a couple of weeks ago, remember that storm that hit on Sunday just before service, or I think it rained all night and coming into literally, I think, after second service. So I received a call from Tuli. Tuli goes, can you translate for these individuals? Uh, and I'm like, sure. These individuals need translation. They're stuck in the middle of the road in 29. So I was like, is that you ahead? Because I was at uh, 29 in Sligo Creek Avenue. I was on the left-hand side. She was on all the way to the right. You know how that goes, right? So I had a way into traffic. were able to kind of like let me go through. Then I put my blinkers on, parked behind her, get out of the car, and behold, this individual does not speak English. I speak Spanish. Uh, Tuli saw the need uh, to stop by just before we were coming to service to help them jumpstart the car. Unfortunately, she forgot she had no jump tickets. So this became an odyssey where like, we're calling Matt, we're calling Courtney, we're calling Brandon to see who's coming along the way that can help us jumpstart the car. Brandon arrives next. So we have Tuli, myself, and Brandon. That's literally like three-fifths or three-whatever, uh, two-thirds of the, the staff or one-third of the staff on the middle of the 29 before service starts. Now, Matt looks at me, uh, Tuli says, can you stay? I got to go and set up the kids. I was like, it's okay. Then Brandon looks at me. He goes, can you, can, can, can you stay? I got to go. I'm a service leader. Are you preaching on that day? I can't remember what it was. And our faith was so great that we wanted to get this car to get jump started that we actually prayed over and laid hands on the car. It did not work, okay? Now, remember, it's raining. It's 8.30 in the morning. I'm semi-water awake. We're trying to get to church on time to do the things we need to do. And all of a sudden, this just creates an odyssey where, like, this phone call at 8.30 in the morning to help these individuals. Now, to get more details of the story, these individuals were on their way from Tennessee to Delaware to pick up someone. Uh, the, uh, to check the air pressure came on right on 29 on the beltway. So they got off, and they literally navigated a float from the exit all the way down beyond Sligo Creek. That's a long way. Okay? And then the car just died. Now, at this point, a police officer stopped by, and he goes, if it needs a tow truck, call 911. They didn't stop. They just went. Okay? So by there, I'm by myself. Then all of a sudden, everyone that's coming to church, because it's coming like, you know, 8.30 gets into 9, 9.15, 9.20. So Chris stopped by, gives me water, he gives me an umbrella. Then it's uh, uh, Bonnie, Judah gets off the car, he goes, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just waiting for, uh, you know, the car to start, uh, tow truck to come or police to stop by. Then it was tied, then it was sack stop. I mean, this just became like an ordeal, right? This small phone call turned into like a three-hour odyssey in terms of like how to get them help. To end the story, the story does not end well. They get towed. We have to find a tow truck, some uh, mechanic shop here downtown Service Spring. They get charged $700 for the alternator, okay? Now, remember, they're on their way to Delaware. So they get their family members to bring them down from Sunday morning to Delaware, bring, take them back to Delaware, wait for the phone call to tell them the car is ready, and then they call me up. They go, can you come and pick us up to Delaware to come and get the car? And I'm like, oh, my busy schedule. <laughs> you know, I'm really busy. My wife is like, how do they assume that you're free? And I'm thinking, can I navigate three hours in my busy schedule to go to Delaware and come back? Because then we have meetings and stuff like that. All to say, I felt really guilty because I couldn't do it. Plus, they invited me to eat lunch on Sunday. And I said, no, because I got to come here for the second service. Okay? So why is all this important? Well, in many cases, we are struggling between 
religion and the gospel. What is religion and what is the gospel? How does it manifest itself in our everyday life? For me, religion was I needed to be here because I had a responsibility to be here for the first service and the second service. But the gospel called me, right? I should have gone and eat with him, plus get a free meal because it was I was cold. I was wet for like two hours, right? But nevertheless, plus no one gave me coffee or tea or asked me if I wanted something to warm up in the church. But that's okay, brother. That's all right. That's all right. That's all right. I forgive you. Now, what happens in the story that we're going to read or Brandon read in Mark 2, we begin to see this struggle between what is religion and what is the intent of the gospel, the true gospel. Now, as I begin to narrate some of the stuff that we're going to read, think about what is the difference between religion and the gospel. And have you ever stopped and wondered what are the things that you're doing right now as a Christian that might be religious versus driven by the gospel? So as we read the story and we read Mark 2, I'm not going to have time to read everything, but we see some glimpses of Jesus going after this religious authority, the scribes and the Pharisees. We We see the first instinct in Mark 2, verses 14 and 15, when Jesus stops and calls Levi the son of Alphabet sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Pay attention to verse 15 and 16. And he reclined a table in the house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And look at the response by the religious authorities. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? When we're too religious, we begin to ask questions like, why are he or she having those types of relationships? Why are they friends with them? Why are they doing certain things? We focus on the sinner, not on what Jesus is doing. On verses 18 and 20, Jesus is criticized for not fasting. So we see here that uh, the Pharisees and his disciples and John and the disciples are fasting, and there's a questioning about why is Jesus and his disciples not fasting? And Jesus says, well, because I don't need to. So we begin to see this very rigid structure that doesn't allow us to do much. Then we see uh, the other interaction between 24 and 26. It says, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, what are they doing? What is not unlawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry and those who were with him? They're picking grains and they're being criticized. Then we get to verse 2 and 3 of Mark 3. And he watched Jesus, and they watched Jesus so to see whether he will heal them on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Four interactions between the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus. One, do not sit with them, do not interact with them. The second one, why are you not fasting? The third one, why are you working on the Sabbath? And the, and the last one, why are you healing? Now, for all of us, all those interactions might look different. What is the Sabbath? How do we keep the Sabbath? What does the Sabbath look like for ourselves or our family? And what we begin to see as we drive a little bit more, the answer is very simple. We read it in Mark 2, 27, 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 28, so the Son of Man 
is Lord even on the Sabbath. When you read that, it's almost like a tongue twister, right? What does it mean? But look at the emphasis here, right? Sabbath, men, Lord. The Sabbath is what's being argued, right? What's being disputed by these religious figures, whether you should do or should not do. And Jesus said, look, hold up. I'm above that. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created not for me, but for men. When we see that, in many cases, religion is creating things like the things you have to do in order to achieve something. You need to be holier. You need to be nicer. You need to be happier. You need to be more joyful. There's also a series of rules. The don'ts, the do's, the can'ts, the can'ts, the must, the shoulds. And the thing is, also, when we begin to put all these barriers and all these regulations, all these rules, sinners are not welcome. We're not worthy and can never achieve holiness, no matter how much we try. Mercy and grace is not available to us. Our appearance is extremely important. And we're pleasing men, and we're seeking the approval of men, not of Jesus. That's what religion does, not what the gospel does. Growing up, I'm from El Salvador originally. Thank God I did not grow up in a very religious, ultra-religious, conservative church. But I did grow up in a conservative Christian household. My best friend and my best man at my wedding, he did grow up in a very ultra-conservative church where soccer was a sin, where listening to non-Christian music was sinful, going to the movies, TV shows, to the point that they had to wear long-sleeved white shirts up to the neck, black pants. Women had to wear long skirts, cover their heads, long hair, no makeup, no earrings. Men and women set apart. There was no electronic music at the church. And if you... By any of this, you fell, you were a sinner, you were called out. And you might say, well, that's too extreme for me, right? I would never abide to that. Well, I know many individuals that abide by that even in the United States. Maybe a more conservative, contemporary Christian uh, story might go like this. We're too busy to use words such as stop and relax. Those words are nearly impossible words to grasp in our busy lives. Maybe it's a sign of weakness. Maybe it's a lack of motivation and aspiration. One of the legacies we're passing to our children is the need for them to be busy all the time. Have you looked at the calendars? Recital, band practice, soccer practice, on top of violin, on top of learning Spanish, right? If you want to merge them into another language. And then you're driving yourself round and round and figuring out how to get some rest between that. Or even, for like my family and I, is what does the Sabbath look like? And when do we have a time to rest and reflect? We struggle with these things. We have a busy schedule. And in some cases, the Sabbath is the Sunday where we attend church. Sometimes not arriving early. Or most Sundays not arriving early. Or thinking whether we pick the first one or the second one. Or... Because our schedule is so busy, we make it once a month. But what is the Sabbath look like in a non-religious matter, but more in a gospel-driven way? And the answer is very simple. Jesus should be and always is the answer. 
When we think about the Sabbath, it should not be about what I shouldn't do or should do, what I should stop doing or should do more of. It should always go back to Jesus. What is Jesus wants from me? What does the Bible say? In a nutshell, here are things that we should begin to think about. If Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was created for men to uphold, not for Jesus, what are the things that we should highlight? Well, for first, he's the bread of life. He's the provider, John 6, 35. He is the light of the world, John 8, 2, 12. He is the door, John 10, 9. He is the good shepherd, John 10, 11. So as we begin to think about questions about the Sabbath, religion versus gospel, we got to look at him. What did he taught us? What does he want us to do? Furthermore, he is the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five to 26. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. I am the vine, John 15, 5. Now, when we put regulations to law, what it does, it weighs us down. In some cases, we're doing that because of shame, because of approval, because of fear. But they will never allow us to truly pursue Jesus freely or a sense of gratitude. We should be rejoicing that we have freedom in him because he is the truth, the way, and the life. Jesus has provided us with his grace, his mercy, his love. He has given us forgiveness and has redeemed us. Those should be enough for making us rejoyful and having a heart of gratitude. But since we're practical, we're Americans, we're American cultures, we always need to, the how-to. How do I achieve this? How do I do this? Well, Jesus provides an example. Jesus begins to tell us how we should live for Jesus. Well, when you begin to dive in and read more and begin to ask questions about what does the Sabbath look like for myself or my family, just remember, the intent of the Sabbath was not about legalism, but a deep relationship with our Creator through two things, intentionality and a divine purpose. So as you begin to use the word Sabbath in your household, go back to the root of it. What was the intent? Why was the Sabbath instituted? And how did that look like for the Jewish people? But then how does that look for us today? So to give you a more practical way to think about it is, this is the intent. When you read the Bible, this is how the Sabbath was intended from the beginning. The Sabbath was instituted for God's people to stop and reflect. You can read that in Psalms 46.10. Stop and reflect. Now think about all the blessings that you have. One of the things that we do with our children, not very effectively, especially before they go to sleep, is let's time have a play, uh, have a time to do grateful uh, Thanksgiving. Right? What are you grateful for today? What are the things? Name three things that you are grateful for today. And you know what? They're always their words come to. Thank you for the McDonald that I got this morning. Right? Thank you for the Chick Fil A that I got this morning. Thank you for the toy that I got. It always goes to the things that they got. And we're like, gratitude is not about just recognizing the things that you got, but it's also recognizing the things God is doing in your life. Now, once again, this is a very 
fail attempt most days, right, to get our kids to be grateful for what are the things they've done, right? But that's usually our, our, our routine at night. Right? What are you thankful for? Name three things that you're thankful for that God did this today, not what he did last week, today, and let's pray over that. It's also meant for rest, Exodus 20, 8 through 11. It is meant to rest. How are we resting? What are the patterns and rhythms that we have in our life that is allowing us to stop and reflect and rest in the Lord? What are we doing? Are we modifying our schedule? Are we saying no to things? Are we, you know, maybe altering certain things? Genesis 1.31, we see God at the end of creation said, and God rested. And he said, it is good. Have we stopped and realized what are the things that God has done in our life? And can we say with our children and our spouses, it is good? Can we reflect in that? In many cases, because we're so busy, right? Doing and doing and, and purchasing and buying and seeing and listening. And we cannot stop and just reflect on what God has done. Exodus 32, 16, Ezekiel 20, 12 tells us it is a covenant between God and his people. Levi 25, 2-6, read it. Okay? This is a story where God tells the people that on the seventh year, they will land their idols, lands idle and not cultivate them. And he says, trust me, your Lord, that I will provide enough on year six that you don't have to work on year seven. Think about that for a second. Right? Think about you as a business owner. Or as a worker, where you're like, I'm going to trust the Lord. On year six, I'm going to stop working. And then on year seven, I'm going to take sabbatical. And God is going to provide enough for me on year six that I'm going to not have to work on year seven. It doesn't make sense, correct? It does not compute. You run the numbers, and you're like, how can I? It sounds great, right, on paper, but it does not translate. But guess what? Chick-fil-A figured it out, right? You would love to take your kids on Sunday, but guess what? Chick-fil-A is closed. They only work six days. They figure out that the seventh, it's a Sabbath. They're not going to work. Yet they're still making money. Now, let me tell you a story a couple of years ago. Many years ago, I was running a, a, I was a project manager for a very ambitious uh, study out of the International Monetary Bank. Looking at remittances in the Washington, D.C. area in El Salvador. I was working with economists. And they were like driving me nuts, and we were needed to produce. We needed to produce interviews. We needed to verify those interviews. We needed to, once they were verified and they were approved, then we got paid. My team will get paid based upon like thresholds. Okay? And we were falling behind. It was month three, and we hadn't even got paid once. Okay? So we we're behind the eight ball. We got some rhythm, we got some traction, and we're starting producing. As we produce, our checks got a little bit bigger, right? Because they were all tied to performances. Now, once again, I'm the project manager looking at timelines, looking at, you know, thresholds and looking at this. And I said, let's start working on Saturdays. Our input increased. And I was like, okay, we're doing great. We're going to catch up. So I said, let's work on Sunday. Now, most of the people working with me, they actually were Christians. And it was this young lady. She goes, I'm not coming in on Sunday. I said, why not? It's just once. She's like, no, it's Sunday. I'm like, but why, right? So we all get into the office really early in the morning, right? We're waiting for the, the total numbers to come in so we can do the verifications. And guess what happened? We got zero interviews. 
We're producing on average 15 to 20 per day. And on that day, we got zero. And I stepped back and I was like, huh, there's a lesson to be learned here, right? I don't have to work on that Sunday. Well, because I didn't produce anything, right? Imagine if I did produce. But I was like, this is a lesson. This young lady taught me, right, that Sunday I should not work. And that became kind of like a model for, for us because we were dating at that time. We said, you know what? We learned something. Now, wind that clock a year and a half later. Okay? My wife is working with me. Um, she decides to stop working. And then she wants to do the switch in terms of what she was doing. She was pursuing something. And then that's when 2006, 2007 hit. The economy collapses. Remember that one? Okay. She's sitting at the University of Maryland because we want to work together so we have the same schedule. She's sitting at the business, uh, uh, business school on a Tuesday. I remember really clearly around 9 o'clock in the morning. She has an interview. And then she texts me. She calls me. She goes, they just passed that there's no more hires in the state of Maryland. She's sitting in the office about to be interviewed. And she, she's like, what do I do? I was like, well, obviously, you're not going to get hired because they're not hiring. For the next year and a half of our marriage, we're just newlyweds, she cannot get a job. Okay? Remember newlyweds? Remember how that feels? One income, the other one's not working, you're struggling. And I remember really clearly, she's beginning to apply 200 interviews, applications. She had a folder of all the applications. And then one lady from church said, why don't you play, uh, apply to Macy's? She's a lawyer. Okay? She's like, why don't you apply to Macy's to be a manager of like, the, the jewelry section? She's like, sure. She applies. She gets the job. But this is the catch. She has to work two Sundays out of the month. And I'm like, babe, you know, we need the income. You should do it. She goes, I'm not going to do it. A month and a half later, she got the job where she's been close to like 13, 14 years now. Now, once again, what does the Sabbath look like? For each of us will be different. The point is that we should be pursuing Jesus. Now, Mark 12, 30, 31, it gives us a glimpse of what that looks like. So read with me Mark 12, 30, 31. And it tells us what is the intent at the end of the day of the Sabbath. And it says, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. You should love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than this. So when you boil it down, no matter the regulations, the rules, the structures, the systems, the paradigms, the laws you want to put, it all comes down to these two commandments. Love God with Everything you are, the decision making in turn who you marry, the decision making what career path you take, the decision making where you move, the decision making in terms of how I'm going to save money, what things are going to purchase, all comes down to glorifying and to loving Him. But as a result of that love for Jesus, for God, comes a consequence, which is to love my neighbor like myself. And I always say it is easier to love God than it is to love your neighbor, correct? Think about that. It is always easier to love God than it is to love your neighbor. Now, when we begin to think about how is the Sabbath structure and what is the intent of it, we just got to remember it's about him all the time. How do I glorify him? How do I love him? in my mind, in my heart, in my strength, in my spirit. 
How is he going to be glorified? I'm missing. There you go. Okay. So when we begin to think about certain things, and we begin to think about this process, and we begin to think about what is it that we are searching for, we have to ask, what are the things that I have to do internally, and how is that going to have an external consequence? Now, at the end of the day, Jesus explained it really easily in multiple ways. But look at me, uh, follow with me, Mark 2.17, and look at their interaction that he has with the Pharisees. Mark 2.17 boils down, he said, and Jesus heard it. He said to them, those who are well have no need of physicians, but those who are sick, I come not to call the righteous, but who? The sinners, the sick. So when I realized that, when I realized that God is seeking me and he saved me, as a gratitude, as an understanding, as comprehending, then I should begin to think about what are the things that I can do as a gratitude for Jesus and also gratitude for my neighbor. And we begin to change the structure between the model that we have. Now we begin to have an external process where I love Jesus, where I love my neighbor because I have an understanding. Now, when we do all these things, it should provide in us a sense of freedom. I'm no longer tied to structures. I'm no longer tied to regulations. I'm not tied to rules. I'm tied to Jesus. And out of that comes a gratitude. A gratitude to seek those that are sinners. Those that are sick. Now, in the gospel, it sets us free. In the gospel, forgives us. In the gospel, it allows us to be healed. In the gospel, Jesus says, follow me no matter what you are. In the gospel, it's about pleasing God, not man. And guess what? Mercy is abundant in the gospel. Amen? Mercy is abundant in the gospel. This should set us free to do what God wants us and has called us to do. And as we conclude and we think about the next steps, Hebrew 4, 8 to 10 shows us a gospel where the Sabbath is going to be present and it's going to be eternal. But what does that look like? Look what it says on Hebrew 4, 8 to 10. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath. Rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. And you see the linkages here, right? God resting from his work goes back to Genesis. Combine it to the end of time where God is going to be resting and we are going to be resting. But look at the continuations. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And look what the pivot point is here or the emphasis. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the divisions of the soul and of the spirits, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions in the heart. In order to understand fully what is this eternal Sabbath, this eternal rest, we need to read his scripture. We need to understand his scripture. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. At the end of days, we're going to be with him. Naked and exposed. No mask, no hypocrisy, no religion. Just us with him. We're going to have to give account. But for those who know him, have no condemnation. They are free. We are free to seek him, to love him, but more importantly, to love others. So as you walk out today, think about the original questions. What is the Sabbath? What is the meaning of the Sabbath for you and I as a family or as individuals? What are the things that we can modify or change without being legalistic, but being driven by his word? And how would that create a sense of hope, of gratitude, right? You heard it for Clarence. Even in the midst of the storm, we can find hope and rejoice in the Lord. The outside world looks at us and they go, these people are crazy. How can they be happy? How can they rejoice in the middle of the storm? Close your eyes. I'll give you some time to think, begin to pray about what are the things in my life? What are the things that I, as an individual, I'm doing from a sense of legalistic, from a religious approach, but not necessarily driven from the gospel? And how can the gospel live in me and look different if it's driven by God himself, by Jesus' sacrifice, by his love, his mercy, and his grace. When we begin to live and depend on the gospel, our actions are different. Our reactions are different. When we do communion, it's different. We rest in him for this eternal hope that one day we'll be with him. The communion is a reminder not only of what sacrifice he did at the cross, but also is announcing that he's coming back for us, his church. When you have prayed, when you have meditated, please take part of the communion. You can eat of the bread and drink of his wine.